I'm glad you're here today. We're going to be looking at Leviticus, but before we pray, I want you to, uh, to know some, some really good news, and I want you to, to rejoice with the Tomlin family. Elizabeth Tomlin was baptized by her father, Bill, last night, and uh, we're really, really pleased about that and happy that Bill got to be a part of it. But whenever one of our young people expresses faith in God and that this is the direction that they are going to live their life and they're baptized and making a commitment to God's kingdom and their sins being washed away and God's Spirit coming inside of them and dedicating themselves to that kind of a life for the rest of their life, that's a great thing. And so if you want to encourage a young person this week, Elizabeth Tomlin... Uh, would love to get a pink encouragement card, especially from those of us that have been around the kingdom for a long time, to remind her on a daily basis of how great the blessings are when God is in your life and God is directing you. Amen. Is Elizabeth here? Can, Elizabeth, can we have you stand? Where are you, sweetheart? Right there. We're really proud of you. That's, uh, let's pray and ask God to bless us. Father, the mountains are yours and the valleys. And regardless of where we go in this world, whether it be in mountaintops or in the valley, you are there with us. And we're so thankful for that. Because we know, Father, that it is a direct, willful decision on your part to abide with your creatures. And we do not make it easy because we, we live at times lives that do not reflect Your holiness. And we make decisions, Father, that do not take the greatness of the majesty and transcendent quality of Your holiness in mind. And so we pray, Father, that as, as we think about the book of Leviticus this morning, that You will help us not just to be discerning, but to be challenged in the, the way we live our life. To put no unholy thing before our eyes. To recognize the greatness of the sacrifices that, have, that were made in, in the time of Moses and especially of the greatness of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus that draws us into Your presence, Father, for all of eternity. And to not be flippant or lackadaisical with that, but to contemplate it and to reflect on it all the days of our life. Thank You, Father, for this book and for the way that it challenges us to think about the way that we live in the world around us as Your people reflecting Your holiness in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a statement. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time with it this morning because it's a statement that we've used at the beginning of all of our sermons as we go through the books of the Bible this year in 2014. And the statement is, it's up on the screen, the Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it's one story about God, about man, about what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together. Let's say that together as a church with our outside voices. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God, man, what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together. 
Now, every year there are people in our church family and really all over the world. And, and, uh, uh, and it's a noble thing to want to do. It's a, it's a great resolution. But people have this great intention at the beginning of the year that they're going to read the Bible beginning in Genesis and go all the way to Revelation in one year. And they start with Genesis, and Genesis is great, especially those first 11 chapters. And then you get into Abraham's life and the life of the patriarchs, and everything's exciting. And you end up with all of God's people in Egypt as Exodus gets started, and there's the life of Moses and the the ten plagues and Mount Sinai. And then you get to Leviticus, and everybody gets bogged down. I mean, it seems so irrelevant. seems so irrelevant and gross. Menstrual blood, hairs turning white in open sores, washing out entrails, blood on the right ear and the thumb and the right big toe of the priest, mold growing on the walls of houses, ooze. I just, yuck! Here's the question though. If Leviticus disappeared, would anybody notice? One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, a guy that was trained at Oxford and now teaches at Beeson Divinity School at Sanford in Alabama, he writes on Leviticus that it must be recognized that Leviticus was and is one of the most important books of the Old Testament. It not only presents the entire religious system of ancient Israel, but it also lays the theological foundation for the New Testament teaching about the atoning work of Jesus Christ. End of quote. Leviticus is a precious book, and it's a treasure to us, even in the age of the New Testament. This last Wednesday night, I mentioned to my class that we were going to be looking at Leviticus this morning, and the challenge was, read Leviticus this week. In fact, make it a yearly practice every year, every single year, to read through the book, slowly, the book of Leviticus. Why? Because Leviticus helps us to know Jesus better. Leviticus helps us to know better our Savior. Leviticus helps us to understand why Jesus did what he did. And for that reason and that reason alone, it should be read every year. But one of the things that helps us as we go through Leviticus is to know its context. And for that, we have to go to Exodus. And uh, I'm I'm going to rely on the work of of Glenn Pemberton, at least in in this contextual part of, of Leviticus. He does such a masterful job because he says you think of the context of Leviticus as a marriage. You think of the context for Leviticus as a marriage. At the beginning of Exodus, God enters into the life of Israel once again after over four centuries of silence. And on the back of your outline, if you want to write these down very quickly, the first part of that entering into the life of Israel, God sweeps Israel off her feet. That's the, the chapters 5 through 13 of Exodus. It's the plagues. It's the deliverance from slavery. It's God revealing the greatness of His power, the majesty and the transcendent quality of His presence in all of the earth. And He just sweeps Israel off her feet. And then they are, they are out in the, the desert. They're out there in the wilderness. Chapters 14 through 18. And God dates Israel in the wilderness. It's not just God showing His great power that sweeps them sweeps Israel off her feet, it's God being very tender with Israel and providing the water and providing protection and providing the food every day in a place where they were vulnerable. It's God that is showing His love and His compassion and mercy by taking care of them. 
And then you get to Exodus chapter 19 and you have the Mount Sinai year where God is with His people and His people with with Him at Mount Sinai for 9 to 12 months. And at that point, God proposes at Mount Sinai to Israel. And then in Exodus chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, and again in Exodus chapter 24, you have God and Israel getting hitched. They're getting married to one another. And the covenant is, is ratified and everybody is in agreement. And church, what comes after the marriage ceremony? Honeymoon. Except in this case, the honeymoon is a disaster. Everything is going so well. He sweeps Israel off her feet He woos her and dates her out in the middle of the desert and takes care of her. He proposes and and marriage is accepted at Mount Sinai. They are beginning life together as God and people. God and His kingdom. God and the people that He has drawn unto Himself. And the honeymoon is a disaster. I mean, how many commandments are broken? Right there at the foot of the place where Israel and God come together in covenant. You have no other gods, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You have no graven images, the next two verses. And then you have possibly no adultery being broken because when the Bible talks about the people rose up to revel, there's some sexual connotations and some sexual activity implied there. Now we know how this goes. Think about a husband and wife. They're in this marriage for a lot of years. They've committed to each other. They've said vows to one another. They've been living together. And then all of a sudden, one of the the, the, the spouse in this marriage, one of the spouses in this marriage, begins to throw all of their intellectual and emotional and physical energies, all of their affections towards another person. And that, that commitment begins to be diminished between the two and that exclusively mutual relationship called marriage. And there are hints that something is wrong when one of the the, the husband or the wife discovers in their spouse's wallet a picture of that other person in that wallet. And then one day, one of the most horrible things that can ever happen, you catch them in the very act of adultery. It just crushes the heart of the relationship. It just crushes the life right out of the heart of that relationship. And that's why when that golden calf is fashioned out of the gold that the people have given Aaron, and the people are bowing down to it and saying, this is the God that we're going to follow. Moses, we don't know about. This God, we don't know about. This God, this golden calf, that's what we're going to uh, worship. And that's what we're going to follow. That's why God says, I'm going to destroy him. Moses intercedes. And God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy, but I'm just not going to go any further with them. I'm just not. And Moses intercedes again and and says, for the sake of the greatness of your name, don't send us without you going. And God says, okay, I will continue And God moves into a tent. And at the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. 
But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. But there's a problem. There's a problem with with God in covenant with people that are in no way worthy to be in covenant with God, let alone in His presence. And the problem is stated this way. How does a holy God live with an unholy people? How does God God live with an unholy people when by the very nature of the glory of His holiness, those people could be struck down? How does God, in all of the greatness of His holiness, live with an unholy God, an unholy people? The answer is Leviticus. Leviticus is the answer to that problem, to that dilemma. And Leviticus picks, off where, picks up where Exodus leaves off. Leviticus 1 and verse 1, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of the meeting, and he said, And what you have in Leviticus is God speaking and speaking and speaking. There is probably no other book in the Old Testament that is filled with with the Word of God coming directly to people like it is in Leviticus. And because of the scope of the book and the the limitation of time we have this morning, what we're going to do is, is think about Leviticus in three major sections. The first deals with sacrifice. Secondly, priests. And then the third major section, which is actually two parts of the book, dealing with purity and the holiness code. Purity and holiness. Now, let's think first about those sacrifices. First seven chapters of Leviticus deal with the different sacrifices that were going to be stipulated in this relationship with God. You have the whole burnt sacrifices. You have grain sacrifices. You have peace and sin offerings and guilt sacrifices. And as you read through those chapters, one of the things you begin to see is that the sacrificial system is complex. It's complex. But one of the main purposes, not all of it, but one of the the tremendously profound purposes of the sacrifices is stated up front. Verse 4 of chapter 1. You are to what? Lay your hand. Say it together. That's an important part. Lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Now what is being stipulated there is that you just didn't come and just drop off the sacrifice and leave. What Moses is telling the people to do is when you come with any kind of a sacrifice, you are to lay your hands upon the head of the sacrificial victim. There is a participation. There is there's an understanding that as you touch that animal and your hands are upon that animal as it is put to death, that that animal is dying for you. That that animal is sacrificing its life and its blood for you. That it's making atonement for you. Now that's one of those subjects that's just debated all over the Western world like you wouldn't believe. But it mainly in the Bible means these four things. That when atonement is being made, it means that there is a restraint or a calming of anger that is taking place. In, in Numbers chapter 16, you have Moses and Aaron. After the people have just grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. And God is striking them down because of their idolatry. That they stand, Aaron and Moses, stand between those that have been killed by the plague and those that are living with incense in the censer. And they are making atonement for the sin of the people. And the text says that it calmed God's anger down. 
And so when you talk about atonement, it's, it's about doing something with that anger of God. And then number two, it's an act that cleanses or it's an act that removes a threat to the relationship. That's what Leviticus chapter 16 is all about with the Day of Atonement. That the threat of, 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 of a relationship being removed because of sin is done with because that sin is removed for a year. And then the third thing, it brings forgiveness to the sinner. Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 20, if you want to uh, jot down that verse, it brings forgiveness to the sinner. And then in Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 15, it also makes that person holy. It consecrates the person or the thing. Sometimes it was an altar that was made holy by, by the sprinkling of blood. But mainly the consecration of people. Now the big question is, get the sin, we get God's holiness... But how could sacrifice actually bring about that atonement? How could sacrifice, blood, burnt offering, actually do that? And believe it or not, this is where we, be we begin. One of the places we begin seeing grace in the Bible. It's not just this New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept too. The idea and the initiative for sacrificial, substitutional atonement was God's idea, not man's. Man could pay the penalty for his sins. That is, condemnation and judgment. He can pay the penalty for his sins, but man cannot pay himself out of his sins. That is salvation. And so God says, this is what we do. By grace, as a gift, God provides the way out through a substitute paying the, the debt. A substitute paying for the crime. And that blood which represented life, that life was being substituted for the life of the guilty party. In Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so now all of a sudden we have a way for people to be able to be in the presence of God and for their sin and their iniquity and their transgressions and their trespasses, their, their sinfulness, their rebellion, their lack of trust in God to, to, to be atoned for. But that also leads us to the idea of a priest, which is huge in Leviticus. In chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Leviticus, we read instructions on the priesthood. Going all the way back to Exodus chapter 2, remember Exodus 2 forms a lot of the context for Leviticus. In Exodus chapter 2, we read that Moses and Aaron are of what tribe? Which tribe? Levi. They're Levites. And in uh, Leviticus 8, 9, and 10, Aaron and his sons become the priests for all of Israel. It is going to be the tribe of Levi that becomes the priesthood. And the priesthood can be kind of summarized in this one statement. Israel's priesthood promoted relationship with God through its ministry. That that's what they did. They provided, they promoted, they, they worked, they encouraged, they developed the relationship between God and Israel. That was their ministry. They were trying to reconcile God and man on a continuing basis. Now, one of the very important things to remember is that people could bring the sacrifice, but they couldn't offer the sacrifice. People could bring their, their sacrifice that was unblemished and unstained, and they could even lay their hands on it to recognize that that animal's life is being given for theirs, but only a priest could make that sacrifice. Which now leads us to the last and, and great section 
of the book of Leviticus. It's about purity and about holiness. And it's not just about the mechanics of sacrifice that allow us to come into the presence of, of, of a holy God if we're Israel. And it's not about just understanding that there needs to be this intermediary, there needs to be this priest that's going to help promote that relationship in his ministry and the services that he offers. But there is something that falls on me every day of my life. And that is to live a life of purity, a life of holiness that reflects the presence of God and my understanding of the presence of God in my life. And so chapters 11 through 15 and 17 through 26 deal with lifestyle. Chapter 16 is about the Day of Atonement. We pick up in chapter 17 through 26, and that's known as the Holiness Code. And to be in relationship with a holy God demanded that God's people develop a holy way of living. In Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 31, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. There had to be a way of understanding that my life as a human being is not just, just lived in, in a relationship with God, but, which is the greatest context, but I'm also in the context of living in a fallen world. And so God looks at His people and He calls them to live a holy life that reflects, that mirrors their understanding and, uh, of Him and, and, their, and His presence in their life. And because that kind of defilement was the kind of thing that brought death and the very kind of thing that brought separation, in chapter 19 he says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You know, those sacrifices can never be taken in this, this general random way that all I've got to do is just drop it off. It could never be just, you know, the priest is going to take care of this. I don't have any kind of responsibility in this. No, God is calling His people to deal with their sinfulness and, and, and to understand that in dealing with that sinfulness, it's not just about a sacrifice, but the call also to live a certain way that, that represents the presence of God in their life before the watching eyes of, of, of the ancient world. He said, be holy as I am holy. And there you have it. Be holy as I am holy. How can that be, though? You know, it, it seems so irrelevant to read about those regulations about sores and scabs and hair and the ooze and all of that. But you know what that is? It's a reminder that we are blemished. It's a reminder that, that all of those blemishes and, and all of those physical manifestations of, of corruption is just a reminder that, that we're blemished. That we're blemished. That we live in a world that is fallen because of our sin. In paradise, in, in God's garden, there wasn't regulations about any of this because there wasn't any of it. 
But because of sin and because of that kind of, 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 of relational holy corruption that entered into the world, it became, there was a, a physical demonstration, a physical manifestation of it. And every time they had to go to a priest and deal with those blemishes and those sores and those hairs and all of that yuck, it was a reminder that there was something wrong with the world and something that was wrong with them. It was a reminder that, that they were not unscathed. And all of those sacrifices every year, year in and year out, year in and year out, done by those Levites, it was a reminder that even among the best of them, there was still a source and a core of ugliness that was, that was deeper than just skin deep. The blood of bulls and, and, and the blood of goats could never take it away forever. It had to be done annually. In fact, that priest couldn't even minister to the nation of Israel until he had made atonement for his own sins. And it just kept rolling forward and forward and forward and forward annually, year after year, going to the priest, going, going to the temple, going to the place where, where there was blood and, and the place of substitutionary atonement that was just year after year after year after year. And then a perfect priest from the tribe of Judah appears. And the writer to Hebrews reminds that church there, wherever it is that he's writing to, it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah. In regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. All of a sudden, a different kind of a priest shows up. You know, there's a sin in the garden. Everything is going great. And God is walking with man and man with God in that garden and naming animals and, and being productive and being fruitful in the land. And it is communion. It is fellowship with God. And then sin enters into the garden. And things become so corrupted. You had the Creator with the creature walking side by side. God being recognized as God, the creature, the human being, recognizing that He was created by that Creator, God Himself. But then He decided not to trust that Creator. And it sort of culminates in those first 11 chapters of Genesis in the Tower of Babel, where man, the, the sinfulness of man has gotten so extreme that He is building a tower that is going to get Him face to face with God. And He's going to challenge God for the possession of the earth. Who's in charge? And then later on, centuries down the road, you have those Pharisees. And you have an understanding of, of, of Judaism far from God's intent. But those Pharisees are sort of at the apex of what is wrong. And they say, you know, this is the kind of life that we live in order for God to give us the kind of life that we want. We do the Torah. We do these kinds of things in order for God to restore the nation of Israel and to take Rome's foot off of our neck. And that priest from Judah arrives. And people are divided over him. 
John chapter 7, Jesus says, you've got to stop being divided. You've got you to stop being divided. You have to make a, a judgment. You have to make a decision. And some of the people believed and others were still divided. Those Pharisees said, not only do we not believe in Him, the, the, those that do, that crowd has a curse on them. And once again, in the history of the world, sinful men lay their hands on Him. They put their hands on this priest and they put Him to death as the Lamb of God. And John, who was there and saw it, said, you know, there's a lot of talk about love in the world. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That God's anger has been lifted off of human beings who have faith in Jesus. His anger, not just for the murder and the massacre of His Son, but His anger over what we have made of His creation that from the very beginning was tov, was very good. That has been lifted off. There is the forgiveness of sin. The relationship that is threatened because of our sinfulness has been restored. And guess what? At the very end of that is the consecration of God's people. Making them holy. The Hebrew writer says, Therefore He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And the result, Christ loves the church and gave Himself up to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the, world, through the, uh, through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or without wrinkle or any other blemish. but holy and blameless. Every time I read Leviticus and I think about what's happening in my own body, I realize that I am not the person that I'm supposed to be. And if I'm not self-aware enough to get that from my own thought process, my own mind, my own heart, 
all I've got to do is look at my body and all of its imperfections and all of its stains and, and wrinkles and, and blemishes to realize that fallenness. Nobody escapes it. Nobody escapes it. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus in love, in love, perfect, perfect, without the need to sacrifice for Himself, but in love can make Himself the sacrifice for me and for you and for you. That there is going to be one day when not only I'm going to be able to see God face to face in all of His holiness and not be destroyed by it, but He is going to bless me with the resurrection body that is perfect and immortal and glorified and without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. And God will renew His people and restore His people to the way He always intended for it to be. When we read Leviticus, what we get out of that is that God is intentionally, with direction, with, 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 with love in His heart, making a way for us, even though we run away, even though we turn away, even though we, we, we fall short, even though at times we are willful and most of the time unintentional, but we, we sin anyway because of our nature, is making a way for us to find our way into His holiness and not be, not be destroyed by it, but transformed by it. We need to praise Him for that. We need to praise Him for the greatness, for the greatness of His love for us in making atonement for our sin, even at the cost of His own Son, that whoever should believe in Him would not perish, should not perish, will not perish, but have everlasting life. That your sins can be washed away in baptism. That you can actually make a decision to change the way you live and God honor that. And God honors that so much that He puts His Spirit in you to help you along the way. To make the confession that His Son is not just your Savior, but your Lord, your King. And that when you're baptized, it's not just your sins being washed away, but you are committing yourself to the King's way in His kingdom. And He helps you on your way, growing in holiness and growing in joy and growing in greatness of heart and growing in vision and growing and growing in your faith. That everywhere you go, whether the top of a mountain or the lowest valley, He is with you. He is with you. Shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If we can minister to anyone this morning, we want you to come down.